When this old world starts a getting me down And people are just too much for me to face I'll climb way up to the top of the stair And all my cares just drift right into space Peaceful as can be And there the world below Don't bother me No, no So when I come home Feeling tired and beat I'll go up where the air Hello, good friends Mark Baver here, at long last, with episode four of my podcast adventure, which I'm calling Begging to Differ, and today's subject is an idea that I've been thinking about for six or eight weeks. It's actually called The Collapse of Things Sacred, Seeing God in What Is. It's kind of a heavy topic. The Collapse of Things Sacred, Seeing God and What Is. And I'm going to try to do a little bit of just to it, justice uh, to that subject and thought here in just a minute. But first, I just want to thank you so much for uh, taking a few minutes of your time to listen to some of my thoughts about living life, connecting meaningfully with people, connecting more meaningfully with your best understanding of God and ultimate reality or even with your misunderstanding of God. I've got a friend in a recovery community that I'm a part of who who often talks about the God of his misunderstanding and he says it kind of jokingly but I've grown to understand that maybe that's a pretty honest and profound way for any of us to talk about our faith because certainly you know we're, we're kind of limited in what we do know and experience and maybe a more humble approach to say that whatever I'm feeling, there could be an element of misunderstanding, but I'm still trying to seek ultimate reality. But I'll come back to that in just a minute. You, if you're listening to this, uh, you're obviously the kind of person that'll take a few minutes of your time to listen to a podcast. And, And I'm really pleased that you, my friends, are listening to mine and paying me the great honor of just taking a few minutes to to listen in on some of my thoughts. But what I want to do right now is suggest to you two of my favorite podcasts. In fact, if you really want to make good use of your time, you might quit this one and go to a couple I'd recommend. But there's one that I listen to weekly by a guy named Rob Bell, and it's called The Robcast. And he does a new one about every Monday. There's 116 or 17 of them out there already. And I tell you, it's amazing to me how Rob can since so connect with the living of life and have things relevant to say. So that may be one you'd find very helpful on your journey. And another one that has been as meaningful to me as about anything I've ever encountered in life uh, from an intellectual or stimulation point of view, from, from kind of a source for education and inspiration and learning, is called On Being by Krista Tippett. 
And Krista Tippett just has conversations with people from every single walk of life, profession, religion, or whatever. And it's amazing how people's stories tell stories that connect with all of us on our journeys. So obviously you're, you're a podcast listener. Uh, you're paying me the honor to listen to mine, but I would really recommend these two. They're, they're for free, obviously. There's nothing for sale on any of them. And uh, I just think you might find them helpful. But with that said, I want to go on uh, kind of quickly to my idea for today. I was on an airplane uh, coming back from a conference that I was in in New Mexico uh, back in July. And I was reading a, a book by one of the presenters at the conference, a guy named James Allison from uh, the UK, who's uh, an unbelievable theologian and quite a good writer, and I happened to hear him speak, and one of the books uh, that I, I bought was a book of his called Faith Beyond Resentment, Fragments, Catholic, and Gay. As it turns out, uh, James Allison is an out-of-the-closet homosexual, a brilliant, kind gentleman. It was wonderful to uh, be able to listen to his uh, thoughts and presentations at a conference uh, my wife and I attended uh, and the theme was everything and everybody belongs. And it was very insightful for us to be a part of that. But in his book, uh, Beyond Resentment, I came upon a phrase that just captured my imagination. And I kept, I'd read along and, and on a two or three hour flight to Houston and then between Houston and Little Rock and, and uh, or I think it was Little Rock we flew into, it doesn't really matter, it's here, uh, Memphis, I believe it was. But the point is, I kept going back to this phrase, the collapse of the sacred. And he had actually told uh, an old Old Testament story about Elijah at the battle with, with uh, the, the gods of Baal and, and, uh, and at Mount Horeb where they called down fire and it licked up and then they, they killed about 500 people in a real violent, violent scene. And then later on in the story out of 1 Kings, uh, Elijah winds up alone, afraid, depressed. And uh, historically, you know, we've looked at that and saw the scene where Elijah calls down the fire and they kill these false prophets as, yeah, the good God of the Bible wins. And it's kind of a God against God story. And uh, Allison points out in this book when he starts talking about the collapse of the sacred that truth be known, when Elijah was alone, depressed, where the big event, where the fire fell, really didn't, didn't speak of deep substance to his heart. And then he goes through this uh, list of things where there's a fire and an earthquake and a great wind, and God is not found in any of those, but later in a still, small voice. And what that still small voice pointed out to Elijah was that he was not the only one being faithful. In fact, there were 7,000 more faithful people he could find. And Allison then goes on to explain how that whole story was kind of a showing of the collapse of some sacred notions that God would just fight other gods on their own terms. Well, this may not be making sense to you, but I've been thinking about it for about six weeks, and hopefully I can 
kind of expand on what I think it means to me. Uh, and just the phrase, the collapse of the sacred, here's kind of an understanding I've come to. And that is that maybe the only real growth of spirit or enlargement of heart or expansion of our consciousness where we're more in tune with ultimate reality, which most of us choose to call God, even God is revealed in Christ, or any kind of understanding of real transformation of life where we move from one level of behavior and understanding to maybe better levels or one level of how we view other people to maybe a more inclusive or all-embracing level where just our views of life get transformed. Well, what I'm trying to say is the only real growth in these areas comes to the degree that our cultural and inherited and self-constructed notions of what is sacred collapses and they found wanting are empty or even some of our notions of what is sacred die for us, if you will. And it's kind of odd and it's, again, counterintuitive that things we've held to be sacred our entire lives and in the realm of the sacred when something about those can come to be found wanting, empty, if you will, collapsing, that what it does is not eliminate the sacred from our lives, but it actually gives us new, fresh, you know, kind of life-giving, authentic, transformative opportunities to be born anew, if you will, or nurtured and expanded inside of ourselves so that we're truly and wonderfully growing in new and fresh ways in ways we had never thought of. So let me just kind of say that again. That was a little wordy. But this whole notion of the collapse of the sacred to me means this, that we really grow in life. We really grow in the spiritual life, getting a larger heart, expanded consciousness, transformation of life and character. We do that to the degree that some of our cultural, inherited, self-constructed notions of what is sacred can found to be wanting, dead, empty. And then what happens is something new, fresh, authentic, transformative is born inside of us. It's almost impossible to explain, but it's as real as anything I've ever known in my life. You know, the truth is we all have what we could call inherited cultural notions of things that are sacred. We get these ideas growing up in our families of origin or our church of origin or whatever our faith background of origin was or no faith background of origin, but we all have notions of things that are in the realm of the sacred. And I just thought of two or three examples that I'll use hopefully to try to kind of make the point that I want to make about the collapse of the sacred. One of the things that a lot of us, certainly in the South, grew up with this notion of what is sacred is the church house, the sacred space, if you will. In most towns in the South, it's on the corner of Main and Broadway. 
and it's First Baptist or it's First Methodist on the other corner or the Christian church or the Presbyterian, but most any town in the USA, certainly small towns, there's a square, very near the square, there's going to be that sacred place, many beautiful uh, buildings, with the finest of architecture, and, and it was obvious that people of many years ago and even of recent origin have spent lots of money and paid attention to creating beautiful spaces that come to be known as sacred spaces, the church house. And, and so if you grew up with, with a spiritual background that involved church, then obviously one of your sacred places was a sacred space. And what we did in those sacred spaces, it was kind of odd. You know, you, you sort of talk differently when you go there. It's okay to maybe utter a cuss word if you're outside the church, but you'd never think of letting one slip inside the church because, you see, it's a sacred space. Or even we would say, you know, I'd have heard people say a lot of times in those quote-unquote sacred spaces, man, I'm not going to lie inside the church. As if to say, I'm, I it's okay to lie, stretch it, fib a little bit, uh, if I'm not inside here, but since I'm in this sacred space, then I gotta I gotta talk differently. And I know when I was growing up as a kid, like you, you didn't run in the sacred space. I mean, that was just God forbidden if you ever ran. And then you certainly dress differently when you'd go to the sacred space. And uh, we would teach our children, this is God's house, and and everything about that. Certainly trying to say this is God's house was with the purest of intentions. And I'm full of gratitude for so many of my memories about the various church houses that have been a part of my life. But in 1995, I learned something about sacred spaces. I was actually in Camden, Arkansas with my wife and three sons in my mother-in-law's house when I got a phone from a head deacon back at First Church in Marion that the church, the sacred space, was on fire. The house of God was burning down. So we jumped in our car, hauled back to eastern Arkansas as fast as we could. And when we got there, we found in a heap of smoking ruins about a 100-year-old building, or I guess built in the early part of the century, 75- or 80-year-old building, one of, the, one of the really beautiful facilities in all of uh, Marion there, and it was just a pile of burning, smoking rubble. And our people were out on the street brokenhearted, uh, it was a beautiful facility, and people had many wonderful memories of weddings there and, and meaningful experiences uh, with, with God and their spiritual growth and learning there and weddings, as I've mentioned, and funerals and, and uh, great meals and fellowships in the fellowship hall. And, and, man, there it stood in a pile of smoking ruins. And I remember in the days after that fire how a lot of people uh, were – their children, the little kids, were having trouble because they, they couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that God's house was destroyed. So where are we going to meet God now? And uh, so a sacred space was a pile of smoking ruins, and because we thought of it as a sacred space, it kind of uh, had a little bit of an un, uh, a, a feeling of unsettledness. The collapse of a so-called sacred space 
as it turns out, though, gave us an opportunity to start seeing differently, think differently, and begin to at least entertain the notion that church is not about brick and mortar and that the spiritual journey is not all confined to a space, but that maybe more realistically it's about a people and a people in a relationship with with one another. And so then there's multiple problems that can be born out of identifying a space as a sacred space. And I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't have those places we go to gather, to get together, to talk our theology and to try to expand ourselves and to relate to one another. We need spaces. But the problem is, is when we identify space as the sacred space, it means then logically that when I'm not in that space or another sacred space, that then when I'm in other spaces, I'm in secular space where God is not. So if God's house down at the corner of Main and Broadway is really the main place that's a sacred place, what it begins to do to us is have this false dichotomy of where there's sacred spaces and not-so-sacred spaces, and we're missing out on a lot if we're there. So that's one illustration, sacred spaces. And then there's another thing that might need to collapse for us in our thinking, and that's sacred hours. Typically, growing up in the South, we thought in terms of, especially if you were a Baptist, there were three sacred hours a week, 11 o'clock Sunday morning, 7 o'clock Sunday evening, or maybe six, but you get the point, and then Wednesday night, prayer meeting. That's where the truly spiritual people showed up. We used to say 11 o'clock Sunday morning, the people that loved uh, themselves were there, and at 7 o'clock Sunday night, the people that, that loved the church were there, and on Wednesday night, the ones that loved God were there, which was kind of a corny joke. But we had all these sacred hours, and what you would think is, is I know I did as a kid, is like all the rest of life is kind of, you know, I don't, that's when you get to have fun and, and stuff like that. And then you got these, <coughs> these hours that are a little painful, and those are the sacred hours when we're truly spiritual. And uh, when, when we kind of attend that hour, then we're good people if we miss that hour, we're bad people, and the more we can be there, the better we are, and the better our chances on the end game, and, and that's kind of the way we start thinking about sacred hours. Well, there's a problem with this sacred hour notion, and what it is, it suggests that all the other hours of our lives and our days are, in fact, secular. And so sacred spaces and sacred hours are actually some sacred things, if you will, that kind of need to be notions that collapse so we can have an expanding understanding of where it is we can truly encounter ultimate reality and God. One more uh, idea to help you think about the collapse of the sacred is we have these what we would call sacred truths 
sometimes people would call them their, their unbendables or their fundamentals. But if you think about it very long, it's just like typically, you know, those are sort of new, whatever the fundamentals are, maybe at most two or 300 years old. And, and now all of a sudden, here in the 20th century, we've figured it out, and these are the unbendable rules, and these are the sacred truths that we can't tamper with. And there'd be things like, you know, maybe people have a certain view of the Bible, and I'm not going to go into all the different views, but some people hold their notion of how the Bible was inspired as sacred. This cannot be tampered with. Or a view of the end of time, or a, a view of how... Uh, how you know we're supposed to practice certain rituals or like the communion some would say it should be done this way and that's the only way or others would say the communion should be done this way or in this time and only this way and so we we get these notions or views and then also people get these ideas of who is the insider and who is the outsider to the faith and their notions become sacred notions that, you know, just can't be tampered with. Well, the problem with holding your view as a sacred view not to be tampered with is that then you have to see people who hold an imposing view from you as bad news or lost or liberal or fundamental or or whatever you would deem a bad word. And so it's like when we get sacred notions that can't be tampered with, then it's just logically true that someone who holds a different notion than we do, well, they're bad because they don't hold, quote, the sacred view. And so I've been thinking about that when I've been thinking about this phrase from Allison about the collapse of the sacred. And that is that surely there's a better way than holding my views as sacred and anybody else who's different from me with a view that is not sacred, which I hadn't been that way in a long, long time. There's probably a time in my life when I was, no question about it. But unfortunately, we see so much of this in today's world where, where people just feel like they've got an idea about God and truth and the Bible and and that sort of stuff, and, and if anybody is different than, than because my view is sacred, uh, then that's bad news for them. And that just can't be the way it unfolds. So I'm thinking, here's a better way. Maybe a better way would to begin to see all people, especially those who see things and see life differently than do I, not as a secular project, not as something or someone to condemn or to put a wall between me and them, but rather to see all people as people like myself, a fellow struggler who really do care deeply about being connected to God, to ultimate reality, and to have a meaningful life. And just because a brother across the street from me sees it differently, maybe if I could see him or her as a fellow struggler, it might be a better way to do life than to see that person as a project 
or one who's condemned or who is not among the sacred. There's a story I've told, I don't know, I bet a hundred times in my life that I love so much about a little granddaughter in her grandfather's lap asking the question, Granddaddy, can a person see God? And grandfather thought for a while and he said, Sweetheart, if your eyes are open, that's all you can see. And man, I heard that story 20 years ago and used it in sermons because I thought it was a good story. But it stays with me. And I think in the last certainly 20 years of my life or the last 17 years of my life when I had some things that I held sacred collapse around me, some of it by my own doing, that the collapse of things sacred that I held wound up being the thing that cracked open a space in my heart so I could really start seeing God in everything and in everybody. The collapse of the sacred, you see, is really about being willing to admit some things. It's about being willing to admit that sacred spaces and sacred times, sacred beliefs, sacred ideas, sacred notions, they can really have a way of being constrictive or limiting or boxing us up so we're not really free to celebrate the great freedom that is God. And we're not really free to lean into the great mystery of God. So what if there's not a sacred space at the corner of Maine and Broadway, but what if all space is sacred space? What if in all your life you can never not be in a sacred space? Man, this notion has helped me. I drive about 1,000 miles a week in my job, in my car. I listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of NPR, a lot of CNN, which tells you something about me. But then I turn it off sometimes and just try to think, you know, I'm in this world, which right now, because we've had a lot of rain in Arkansas and it's been just so verdant, everything is just so full and green and spectacular. And we're just on the verge of moving into the fall where it's going to be so brilliant. And, and, and you have these notions when you're just out in space that it's sacred space. And it's, it makes all the difference in the world. Uh, in July, I had the great privilege of being on the Atlantic Ocean. And I mean, who cannot go to the ocean and stand in that sand and look as far as you can see and feel the breadth and not have these sacred notions that while I'm watching the sun rise or the sun set, that I truly am in a holy place. And it's not encumbered or boxed in by bricks and mortar or ideas, but just alone in creation and having a sense of everything is sacred. And what if all time is sacred time? Not just 11 o'clock Sunday or 7 o'clock or Wednesday night prayer meeting. But what if 
all time is sacred time. Bath time with a child. Playing out in the yard with a dog chasing a ball. Getting up, going to work, sitting across the table from people and trying to make sales or sitting in front of a classroom of students trying to communicate truth or whatever it is you do. I got a son who's an oral surgeon and what if the gift or the ability to do surgery in someone's mouth in fact is sacred. Some of you have friends or relatives or you yourself are highly trained professionals and if all time is sacred time then the way you invest your time in helping someone's books balance and helping someone's health improve helping someone's education get better believing in somebody who doesn't believe in themselves or being a therapist or anything that you could do in life if all time is sacred time does that make a difference in how we do our lives? And what if all of our so-called sacred ideas are inadequate, empty? What if every thought we ever had about God or ultimate reality, or what if every lesson the church ever, ever taught us suddenly was proved to be absolutely false? probably won't happen don't get me wrong but I'm trying to make a point but what if you just came to a conclusion one day that my best notions about God are short of what mystery really is all about and what if my ideas that are held to be sacred could collapse and because my collapsed ideas die I can then wind up leaning in to an inexhaustible mystery that gives me energy and courage and the will to get up and keep on going what if all people I'm talking all people are a reflection of the divine what if in every eye in every heart, and in every face you ever saw, there was the handiwork of God. Would that make a difference in the way we do life and think about life? This is kind of hard if you make, if you make this apply truly and everything, I mean, and everybody, even people that have made just God-awful decisions in life that have wounded others. And yet we could still say somehow deep inside of them there's a spark of the divine. What if, if you're a Democrat, you said even Republicans are made in the image of God? Or what if you're a Republican and you could come to the point of saying even Democrats are made in the image of God? Would it make a difference if some of the notions we had would just collapse even the things that we hold totally sacred, if they collapsed, then what? Well, then what is you can start seeing God in all things, all people, 
all places, and ideas you never even thought of yet, your world will expand, and I promise you, your relationship to people all around you will get better and stronger and more meaningful. Well, maybe I'll share some more later about the collapse of the sacred, but I hope I've made the point. Are your eyes open? If they're open, sometimes all you can see is ultimate reality. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again, or we'll talk again soon with Episode 5, Begging to Differ. Dreaming hearts We were sons The singers and their songs And the lonely ones We lay low Aiming high Waiting on a muse To take us for a ride So when you're gazing out into Find your way alone. Raise your sail, let it fill. Pull your anchor up and ride the storm. Set your heart towards the sun and know you're not the only one waiting on the breeze. Of a dream that's born Sometimes it takes you Far and back again That's hard